Am I on yet? There you go. All right, good. All right, guys, I would like to invite you to join in um, the reading of God's scripture. We're going to look at John chapter 5, verse 1 through 8. And so hear this word from God. After this, there was a Jewish festival, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, in the north city wall, is a pool with the Aramaic name Bethsaida. It had five covered porches and a crowd of people who were sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed sat there. A certain man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, knowing that he had already been there a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I do not have anyone who can put me in the water when it is stirred up. When I am trying to get to it, someone else has gotten in ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Immediately the man was well. And he picked up his mat and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. You aren't allowed to carry your mat. He answered, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. They inquired, Who is this man who said this to you? Pick it up and walk. The man who had been cured didn't know who it was because Jesus had slipped away from the crowd gathered there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you have been made well. Don't sin anymore in case something worse happens to you. The man went and proclaimed to the Jewish leaders that Jesus was the man who had made him well. As a result, the Jewish leaders were harassing Jesus since he had done these things on the Sabbath. Jesus replied, My father is still working. And I am working too. For this reason, the Jewish leaders wanted even more to kill him, not only because he, had, he was doing away with the Sabbath, but also because he called God his own father, thereby making himself equal with God. Well, good morning to you. I hope you're doing well this week and and we're going to jump right into this John we we kind of we kind of stepped off it at Easter we still actually used John as our text last week uh, but we're tracking right back through this and the very first verse says after this meaning we pick right up where we left off last time in uh, chapter 4 where Jesus heals the son of this Roman official this Gentile uh, official and Jesus heals him, and he teaches him something about belief. Belief is not just seeing, it is hearing the word of Christ. Do you believe that? That if you hear the word of Jesus, you can believe on that. So that's where we left off, and now this is after this. Now, here's what's cool about this. Maybe not cool for you, so, but cool for me, and I'm going to tell you, because I'm up here. Uh, when I became a Christian, I started attending uh, a youth group on Wednesday, but on Thursday night, I attended this thing called uh, Club. Super name, right? It was called Club with a K. Kids Living Unusually Better was the title. 
listen, I know for teenagers today that would probably not be a cool name, but I guess for us it was it worked, right? And this passage is the first passage I ever got to share a lesson after I became a Christian. This little John chapter 5, and I remember it vivid. Like, I wrote it out. I thought, oh, this is going to be 15 minutes. You know, it turns out to be about six minutes. You know, and, but I remember some of the stuff I said that day. And overall, the point is probably accurate. How I got there, I look back and go, well, I'm glad I've studied this passage since then. <laughs> I'm glad I've studied some context and understand some things. So that probably brought, you know, a teenage American mentality and put that right into the passage. Um, but this is a really interesting passage, and there's a lot of things that show up, and there's a couple things we have to wrestle with. So let me give a little warning here before we crank through it. It's going to seem like it's kind of one of those grab here and grab from here, and oh yeah, by the way, and then he says this, and that it's a little scattered, but you're going to see how these things come together to really direct us moving forward in the book of John. And I think challenge us with a couple questions or thoughts uh, at the end. I remember when my daughter was somewhere around seventh grade, um, she got really talkative as a teenage girl, right? And sometimes I'd pick her up and I'd be driving home and she'd be sitting there and when she would just talk and I do this today and this today and he said this and then my teacher did, did you know that today? You know, and on and on, you know, uh, that. And I would just sit and, you know, as dad, sometimes we get in the mode of just going, uh-huh, oh, yeah, oh, that's great, uh-huh, uh-huh. Because I didn't need to say many words. She could fill the, t the space and the time. It may seem a little like that as we're jumping around, but I promise you it brings it back uh, with us. So John chapter 5, I hope you'll have your Bible open instead of uh, just staring at me. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 1 through 18, and we'll hit several of the verses, but we'll get the story. After this, there was a Jewish festival. Listen, I know you're conditioned to read right past those things. Jewish festivals, great, we move on, right? But it'd be like this. Hey, and then we went to a birthday party. Oh, yeah, whose birthday party, right? We would ask that question. That's what we should do when we hit something like this. Oh, what Jewish festival? What was that all about, right? What was going on? Because that's going to speak into the context a little of a passage. So there was a Jewish festival, and this is the festival of Purim, right? And it's the festival of lots or it's festival of tabernacles. And here's what it signifies. If you remember the story uh, in Esther and the saving of the Jewish people from, from Haman, if you remember that story, that is what they're celebrating. In fact, all three of the festivals in some way, all of the required festivals to go back to Jerusalem were about deliverance in some form, God delivering his people. And that's what they're celebrating at this. And the way they would celebrate it is they would, they would say that, God has actually delivered us, and if you remember the story of Esther, God has given us lots in life, or actual for them. We, we, we use it as a slang, you know, that's my lot in life. Their lot would actually be lots, like this is where I live, this is my dwelling place, this is my house, and they would say, God has given us this. And so they would celebrate this, and they would come and they'd actually build these makeshift tents, and they would live in them during the festival as if a way to go in there and say, God, thank you for this. And then they'd go to the temple and they'd worship. They would fast during the festival and then they'd have a big feast at the end. Your kids right now back in the Sunday school class are studying about Purim right now in that class. And so you can see a tie-in. So you can ask them afterwards, not, did you have fun? Say, what story did you learn today? And if they say, I don't know, then well, we're in trouble. But no, they won't. So 
So uh, this is the, the festival that's going on here. And it's at this sheep gate. Uh, it's at the gate into the, not quite into the temple, but before this, it's at a gate you would go through, and there are these pools there. And the name in Aramaic is Bethsaida. Now, it's not the town of Bethsaida. That's up in Galilee. This is the name of the pools that are there in Jerusalem. So don't get those confused if you've heard that name pop up other points in the Bible. So they're called this. In fact, these porches were specifically called this. So they, they said, hey, what should we name these? Let's name it Bethsaida. Here's why. The Bethsaida means this, house of loving faithfulness. That's what the name actually means. Or maybe you want to shorten it to understand the concept is blessed. The house of blessed or blessing, if you want to say it that way, or the house of being blessed. And so the, the, the idea here was these pools were going to be a blessing, right? Now, in a hot, arid area, you can understand how a pool might be a blessing. But we're also going to learn that the pools were used for washing as well because there's a feast that was going to go on. And here was the idea that you would bring with you when you came to the festival, you would bring something to contribute to the feast. And then the temple, they're going to run the feast. They're going to cook it up and they're going to run this whole thing. And all the leftovers are going to be given to the poor. That's the idea here. But you were to bring this. So it's almost like this. When we go up to Lot and we ask you, will you bring five cans of baked beans? And you bring them here and we cook it up and we take it up there and we serve them. That's kind of, uh, to some degree, what's going on here. A feast is part of the festival. So the pools also serve as a place to wash the lambs, right? To clean the animals on the way. Now, you might think, oh, getting in a pool, you know, where they're cleaning lambs too, that sounds gross. But that's what the pools were for, right? They were for all of this, this refreshing here. Then there was also this legend of healing. In fact, take a look at your Bible. If you have a little bit of an older Bible or older translation, you'll probably notice there is John chapter 5, verse 4 in your Bible. Anybody have a John 5, 4 in your Bible? Maybe? Yeah? I don't know. I see your hand at home lifted. So, yeah. So now you might look at your Bible and go, wait, whoa, wait a second. Mine jumps from 3 to 5 here. Because there's a little verse in there that actually explains this legend in there. That when an angel would come and stir up the water, or some translations actually say dip the finger in the water, that that's what would lead to this healing. And that puts in context what happens when Jesus asks this guy if he wants to be healed when he speaks about the water being stirred up. Now, most biblical translators now understand that that was most likely, verse 4, is a commentary that was put in there later so they understood what was being talked about. And so some translations leave it in. Some translations have pulled it out altogether. So you make sure you have the earliest form of the text in here. So either way, that's kind of what's going on here. There is this legend of healing that the angel of the Lord would actually, uh, if you want to say dip the finger in, but would stir up the water. In fact, the actual understanding is that the angel would blow there would be like the wind, you know, or the spirit, same word, wind and spirit, would blow on the water. And when it would stir, if you got in, there was healing. The water was now blessed, or Bethsaida was now active when the water was stirred up. And there was that understanding, too. 
And so all of that's going on here at this pool that it's supposed to be a place of blessing. But there's a guy there that's been there 38 years. Whether your translation says paralyzed, lame, or unable to walk, he's there and he can't, he can't move. He's immobile and he's been there as described 38 years. John doesn't always give us these details, so there's something significant that has been a very long time that the man's been there, and he's immobile. He can't participate. He certainly can't participate in the festival that's about to go on in the temple. He can't get there. But also, did you know of the three festivals, Purim had dancing. It was part of the worship for them to dance. And so this guy is certainly not participating in that either. And yet here he is sitting at this pool, likely a good place to ask for food, maybe for money, and to be close enough to the pool that if this legend is accurate, I might get down into this water. So Jesus has this interaction with him. And the first question he asks is this, do you want to get well? Seems like a duh statement, you know, <laughs> like, come on, Jesus. In fact, I remember when I first preached this, that's how I went at it, like almost like, Jesus, come on, what are you doing asking a question like that? But Jesus is always trying to pierce through and ask something deeper, something really deep. Do you want to get well? No, no. Do you really wish to get well? No, no. I know you don't like your circumstance. I, don't know, I know you don't like your setup, but do you really want to be well. That's what he's asking on a deeper level, and we'll actually see this more here. The guy's been there a long, long time. But it also would seem like if this legend was true, I have no one to put me into the water when the angel stirs it up. No one to put me down there. 38 years, he has no relationships, no connections whatsoever. Some of that might have been just people disregarding them. Do you drive down the street, and sometimes you see certain people on certain corners in certain locations, and you're like, ooh, get in the left lane and move along, right? Could be. It could be that that's part of it, too. It also could be a part that eventually kind of gave up. Quit trying. This is my lot. This is just where I'm going to be in life. But it doesn't seem like a lot of effort is being made anymore to make friends, to have somebody that might put him in the water if indeed this legend is true. So there's a circumstance situation he's dealing with, but there's also probably like a will situation, a willpower situation as well. Man, I read that and I'm like, man, that's so like us, isn't it? That there are times where our circumstances beat us down, but then there's also that point within there that we might click in and say, Oh, and we relax any willpower, any drive ourselves, And these, three, these things work together, and we're seeing that in this passage here. Fully defeated, this guy. And Jesus comes along asking, do you wish to do it well? And this is really what he's asking. This is what he's saying. Jesus offers salvation only to those who desire it. Jesus is saying this to him. If you want to get well, if you want new life that I have to offer, it's yours. I'll give it if you want that. If you'd like to remain in your circumstance, 
then there's no reason to accept this. There's no reason for me to even offer this to you. I mean, you got to understand that, that that sounds like, well, it's a clear choice. But how many times do we in our lives want new life, want to walk forward, but we realize what might be involved? Or we realize I feel emotionally different the next day than I did when I wanted that. And we kind of step off it. Or we return to our circumstances. It's like sometimes we have this, this metaphor of if you carried baggage, you carried weight, or you carried the things in life with you, and you just like picture it here, and you heard just an impactful message or song that says surrender these things, and you just came forward, you just surrendered and said, Lord, it's yours. It's all yours. And then they played the last song and the last prayer, and we did a couple announcements and services over, and you're like, man, that was awesome. It's awesome. Then you walked right up here and just picked that up and then walked outside with it. Like, would that make a lot of sense? No. So Jesus is saying, look, salvation, new life is there for those who desire it. But if that's not what you really want, then why would I offer it over? Because you wouldn't really understand or receive it or go with it. So the question, do you really want to be well, is important. It's powerful. So uh, Jesus responds to the guy, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Immediately, he's well. Immediately, he's able to do this. I don't know if there was feeling in his legs or what happened, but he was able to stand up. There had to be some form of faith even that he would stand up and know that his legs are going to protect him. And he stands up, and he can walk. Now, I told you last week, and you have to remember this, that this isn't just about healing. None of the healings are. This is a representation of what Jesus came to do. For some people out there, and you've seen it, Jesus actually gives them physical healing. They actually can use their legs like this story. But it also represents what Jesus came to do. He came, what? Heal the blind so that we can see. And to heal here so that we can walk in God's ways. No barrier. So understand that is happening too. Now, as often as the case, if we continue on, the religious leaders get in a little tiff about this. And it's very easy for you and I to get upset at the religious leaders and say, come on, guys, why do you constantly do this? Until we dig deeper and we say, oh, do I find myself in this a little bit? Do I sometimes follow their example? Here's what they say in verse 10. Hey, it's the Sabbath. You're not allowed to carry your mat. So picture this. The guy is healed. He's clearly known 38 years. You know, it's not like a million-person town. He's clearly known by these religious leaders. He picks up his mat, and he carries his mat. It's very possible. He said, well, just leave your mat. Very possible this is his only possession other than his clothes. So he picks this up, and he walks with this, also at the direction of the one who healed him. And what do the religious leaders say? Wait a second. Wait, you're the one that you couldn't walk? What is going on? This is amazing. No. It doesn't dawn on them to say it. They say, hey, it's a Sabbath. You can't be doing that. That's work. You can't do it. Like last Sabbath or last Sunday, right? I looked across at my neighbor, and that he was carrying. And I mean, this was impressive, actually. He was carrying two-by-fours on his shoulder right, like this across the yard. And I'm talking not just a two-by-four. He had a big wad of two-by-fours, and he was walking pretty well balanced, 
And that pharisaical thought came in my head. You know, like, well, I know he goes to Catholic Mass. Why is he over there working today? <laughs> that's what the Pharisees, I mean, that's what they're doing here with this carrying your mat, even though he is just healed. This is what they're saying. In order to please God, you must do no work. That's what he's saying to the guy. But that's not Sabbath. That's not a biblical understanding of Sabbath. In fact, Sabbath is, you're not allowed to do work for your own gain on Sabbath. In fact, Sabbath is, is open wide that we're supposed to do God's work on that day. You don't have to do your work on that day. You don't have to sit down and, and, and finish up uh, throughout whatever you had going on the week. You don't have to go trim the bushes at your house. You don't have to do those things. God has said, you are released from those. Do my work. Be close to me in that day. And so the idea of being healed or Jesus healing on the Sabbath, no problem to God. No problem whatsoever. In fact, we have a passage uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament where the religious leaders were actually reprimanded for not handing out food to the poor on the Sabbath because they deemed it work. And they were reprimanded for it. Here's the point. When we miss what God is doing for what we want done, we miss God altogether. When we really miss what God is actually doing, what he's about, what he's active, we miss him altogether. It's the prayer we were praying earlier that give me eyes that I could see. But when I only want to see what I want to see, I miss God altogether. I miss God everywhere. In fact, even more dangerous, I start to define things that are not God as God. When I look at him and walk with him and what he wants, oh, it's so much easier to line up. The Pharisees are saying, we set the standard for the Sabbath. So we, you should come to us if you have questions on the Sabbath, what you can do, or if you need something, you should come to us. And Jesus is saying, well, we go to God. So then we got this, this interesting little passage that shows up if you, if you look there. He, in verse 14, Jesus goes, he goes to the temple, he finds this guy, and he says, see, uh, I've made you well. Don't sin anymore in case any, something worse happens to you. Does that rattle your theology a little bit when you read a passage like that? Wait a second. Are you saying that sin made this guy paralyzed or sin made this guy not be able to walk? Well, we don't know the whole story of how he did it, might, you know, but, but I would say the answer really is no. In fact, we get these couple passages where there's this correlation between something like this and the word sin, where the word sin, it's actually three different passages in the gospel, two besides the one. And when we understand what the word for sin is and what the word means here, then we understand that it might be even a little broader than just our understanding of disobedience to God. The word is harmatia in Greek. It means this. It means to miss the mark or to fall short. And you might have heard the illustration before of there's a target on the back and you shoot and you miss the target. And that's sin. But it's so much more than that. In fact, it incorporates the separation between what you hit and the target. That gap, that separation is sin. So my separation from God and that Jesus came to close that gap and to give us back that connection. But it also means to fall short that we would fall short 
of what God has for us in life, that we would fall short. And we would know that willful disobedience, our selfishness, causes us to fall short. The book of Romans tells us that, right? But you have to also understand that there are these times where harmatia is used to describe when a circumstance, even one that's not been your fault, has caused you to fall short, or you've allowed that circumstance to keep you short of what God has to offer. As if to say, woe is me in my circumstance, God has nothing to offer me. I'm just going to live in this place. And God is saying, no. In fact, if you look through the Old Testament, there was always these times where to bring those people, to, 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 bring, uh, to close that gap. And then Jesus is coming and saying, that's what I am here for, to bring new life, to let you know that even your willful disobedience and your selfishness or your circumstances that I am going to bring you back into connection with God, that you can live out the life, the full life that God has to offer. That is his understanding of sin. So Jesus can say here to this man, listen, you've been made well. Don't go do anything in life that would cause you to fall short of what God has given you or what he wants to offer you in this new life. Don't do anything moving forward that would be that. You've already seen what it's like to live that way, where you feel separated from God. But I have restored you to new life. I've given you new life. Don't go choose willfully anything that would cause separation once again. So anything that keeps you short of what God has for us, God allows us to overcome all sin. Listen, here's why that's good news to you and I today. Because there's some of you that you can't really identify something that falls in that list of sins you've heard your whole life. You can't find something that's this willful disobedience, right? When you look at it. But you know as you're living out, you're not experiencing the life God has to offer. And there's these times where what we've done is we have bought into the idea that our circumstances prevent us from receiving from God. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not the case. In fact, right here in the festival of Purim, which celebrates the lot in life that God gives you, Jesus is saying, you can experience total fullness of life, even despite your circumstances. Now, does that mean you just say, hey, just suck it up and move on in life? No, no. I mean, Christian counseling, incredibly important if you have that avenue, very important. Going to, to talk and and therapy, and all these tools that are available to us now that we understand, very important. But let's understand, we start with the concept and the idea and the understanding that God wants to give you life, fullness of life, a life that's not separate or that's not fallen short. God wants to offer you that. This last final uh, dialogue, we get Jesus declaring his work is God's work. Take a look at verse 16. As they're questioning him, Jesus replies to the Jewish leaders, my father is still working, and I'm working too. Jesus is saying this, look, God is at work on the Sabbath, meaning God is the one that really healed this person. God's at work, even on the Sabbath. And, God, and he specifically uses the word work, because that would get the religious leaders worked up, right? 
And then he says, and I'm working too. Like he's directly saying, look, the father's doing this and I'm doing it too. The father is doing the work of, of healing and restoration and life offering on the Sabbath. I'm doing the same exact thing. And they clearly understand this because they get, they get upset and they want to start, they want to find ways to kill him right now. And we, as we see in, in verse 18, why? Not only because of the Sabbath. That's the first thing to be upset about, Jesus. You're doing stuff on the Sabbath. You should come to us on the Sabbath. You're going to Jesus on the Sabbath. But this is what really gets him. That he called himself, he called God his own father, thereby making himself equal to God. That you have to understand this concept of father and son here. That this, this type of connection here, it's not just like I would say, I'm a dad, my boys are my sons, and you clearly know we're not the same person. But this idea had to do with how kingdoms were looked at. That God was over some kingdom, and the king of that kingdom was known as the son of God. They were the deity in that kingdom. You've seen this in movies. That was the understanding. So for anyone to call themselves the son of God was putting themselves up on equal level as God. And so Jesus, he challenges their understanding of the Sabbath, and then Jesus places himself on the same level as God. And that put them over the edge. And they're ready to kill him. So as you can see, as we move through this, there's so many little components that are going on. And this is what they teach us, that Jesus is still offering new life. And I think this is important for Christians to understand, because as I've said many times, it's not a once and done. I said a prayer, I'm done, I'm over with that, I got new life. But if you were honest, you're walking through your day, and you're not experiencing anything like the new life we read about in the New Testament of the Bible. God is still offering, Jesus is still offering new life every single day. Daily for you, even you, he's offering it every single day. Like, do you wake up in your day, as it was said earlier, and go before God and say, God, in, in this day, I want to know you more. God, would you lead me in this day? Lord, wherever your Holy Spirit wants me to go, I'm willing to go today, even if it's weird and uncomfortable. Every day. God will help me to overcome in this day. I'm looking to you first. Before I go to any other avenue, I'm looking to you to bring healing to me today. Jesus is still offering new life. You could say any number of those prayers as a before your feet hit the floor type of prayer. Do you have any one thing like that? Is there anything you do before your feet hit the floor? Can I tell you something that I, I discovered about two weeks ago that I realized before my feet hit the floor? I was doing that wordle thing. You know what I'm talking about? The little word puzzle that's been floating around. I was like, I was waking up. I was doing some quick little prayer. I don't even know if I meant it. And then I was looking on there and going, oh, I wonder what the wordle of the day is. And then I would do that. For, and then I would get up and start heading my way. And it was like dawned on me two weeks ago. Like what, am, like, what am I doing to start my day in this? And so before your feet hit the floor, a prayer that goes something like that. Here's the thing, God wants you to overcome today. It won't always be physical healing, but God wants you to overcome. 
He wants to use the Christian community to help you. He wants to use his word to help you. But the Holy Spirit in you is the guiding force for you to overcome, even today. Listen, I know if we go around and we say, hey, addiction, that's sin. We got to overcome addiction. Got to get people off drugs, get people off being addicts, right? Or we say pornography, that's a sin. We got to get people off being addicts to this. But we'll walk around and we'll worry and fret and all these things that bring destruction of life. And as Christians, often we just roll through it. Like, well, that's just how it is. That's just how life is. And God says, no, I wrote it in the word for a reason. I want you to overcome that and experience life because these are barriers. I want Christian community to help you with this. But the Holy Spirit is a leading force. And then finally, I think this is a challenge. It was for me this week. If you claim Jesus, work like Jesus. If Jesus claimed God as his father, he better be working like God. It better look like what God does. If we're going to claim Jesus, we got to work like Jesus too. I don't read one single passage where Jesus stood with his arms in the air and sang three songs. Like, it doesn't exist in the, in the Bible. That doesn't mean he didn't worship and praise his father in that avenue because he went to, to synagogue and he went to temple, right? And they did sing and they danced and they did these things. Well, we don't dance much in here, but... We might get started. So, Zed, kick it off. No. Okay, we won't do it today. But listen, it's clear what Jesus did do to be like the Father. Just read the Gospels and you see it over and over and over. If we're going to be like Jesus, we've got to work like Jesus. The number one work of Jesus in the book of John is to offer new life. Over and over and over, these passages come back to that idea. So I ask you, who's the last person that you have offered new life to? Now, I know somebody just said, well, I can't do it. That's through Jesus. Yes, but who is, who's the last person you introduced to the person that can give them new life and talk to them about that direct? Here's how I found life. It's available for you, too. Who's the last person? So doing the work of Jesus. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for a passage that challenges us in some ways. And Father, I would guess that even in a group of Christians, we are not immune to being overwhelmed and to having allowed circumstances to come in and keep us short of what you really want to offer us. And for many of us, we've just given in to that. This is just life. But Father, whether it brings physical healing, whether you remove the circumstance, or whether we still walk through it, you want us to have fullness of life even in the middle of that. You say, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of God. They get to experience the full presence of you. And Lord, I'm praying for that for everyone here. That you would send us out (coughs) with new life, seeking it every single day, overcoming in you, and then putting ourselves up, not equal in deity with you, Jesus, but equal in activity in what we're about, to go do the work that you were doing in the Father. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.